0: One other question we've had in relationship to what we're doing this past year is, well, what should I bring on Sunday morning? Should I bring the story or should I bring my Bible? Bring your Bible always um, because we're going to cover chunks of Scripture, which is going to be a challenge, but I think it'd be easier for you to have your Bible to be able to go back and forth to rather than the story. So the story is more of outside of our time here on Sunday. With that in mind, uh, we begin at the beginning. So it's real easy. If you have your Bible or the Bible there in the pew or you want to use the Version Bible app, go to page one. We're starting at Genesis chapter 1 and we're going today through Genesis chapter 11. As you're getting there to page 1, this, <laughs> real hard, I know, right? Um, th- the beginning of our journey through the story of the Bible is like the beginning of oh, well, any story, any action-packed movie. I don't, I don't know um, what you're like when you sit down to watch a movie at home or you go to the movie theater, but in most cases, if you miss the opening minutes of the movie... You know, that's the time you choose to get popcorn, you get there late, you decide to go to the restroom, you're probably going to have some difficulty when you get back fully understanding what's going on, understanding the rest of the story. You know, you'll come back and you'll be like, what's going on? Who's that? Why is that happening? It's no less true for this story, for God's story. Case in point, and again we're not going to be able to read all of chapter 1 through 11, but if you're in chapter 1, we as you know, it begins and we'll get the, in more detail on this with this incredible unfolding of the creation of the universe. And if you have chapter 1 open, go to verse 27, and I'm going to read a little bit of the culmination of the beginning. So God created humankind in his own image, it it is written. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. This will be yours for food. So we have this incredible, I mean, this wondrous picture of the unfolding of the creation of the universe, and then if you have your Bible still in your hand, just jump just a few chapters. Chapter six, it's not that far. It's like two pages, and all of a sudden, go with me to chapter six. Don't look at the subheading. It'll give it away, but go to verses five through seven in chapter six, and hear this. It reads, Then the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. This is the word of the Lord. What the heck just happened? What just happened? I mean, if you missed the first 10 minutes, you're like, what the heck? It was all so good. What went wrong? And that's what we're going to look at today. Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we're going to talk about how did we get from there to here? How did things fall apart so fast? Because the thing is, lots of people think they know the beginning of the story. But I want to say to you this morning, the truth is much of our misunderstanding about the Bible, about God, about ourselves, and about this world comes from not really getting exactly what happened and why it matters so much. So today we're gonna look at two things. We're gonna look at how it all began, and we're gonna look at how it all fell apart. So we start with how it all began. And we're gonna dig deep this morning, but there's three observations I want you to have with me in how it all began. I'm gonna unpack them, but if nothing else, I hope you see these three things, and they are. In terms of how it all began, first, the essence of God's creation is goodness. The essence of God's creation is goodness. Second, the pinnacle of God's creation is humanity. The pinnacle of God's creation is humanity. And third, the purpose of God's creation is relationship. The essence of God's creation is goodness. The pinnacle of God's creation is humanity. The purpose of God's creation is relationship. Let's unpack how it all began. From the very first verse in Genesis, we are introduced to the story's main character. And that main character is God. God is the author, the creator of the story, our story. And what we are told is that God, this God, our God, brings something out of nothing. From the very beginning, we are told there is disorder, there is darkness, there is chaos. In other words, there is nothing. And out of nothing, God creates something. God brings order and structure. The first three days that are recorded in the book of Genesis, days one, two, and three, are about the places... The living spaces, if you will, created by God. Days one, two, and three are about the living spaces created by God. Day one, the light and the dark. Day two, the sky and the water. Day three, the land. The first three days are about the places, the living spaces created by God. And then the next three days, days four, five, and six, are about those places being filled with the things those places were created for. So the light and the dark, the sky and the water, the land on days four, five, and six. Four, they're filled with the sun, moon, and stars. Five, filled with birds and sea creatures. Day six, filled with animals and human beings. God creates this universe. And as you know, if you've read this, is everything about creation presented in Genesis is presented poetically and artistically. This is not a science textbook. And when we try to to make this into a science textbook, we're missing the point. This is something that's presenting a broader canvas. Now, to say what I'm about to say, to say it's not a science textbook, does not mean that there's not a scientific dimension to what is presented in the book of Genesis. Because one of the things that I emphasize for you, and this is the key to that first point, is the essence of God's creation is goodness, is the scientific dimension of what's unfolded here is that God creates with order. God creates structure. God creates boundaries, what we call the laws of nature. Remember, the the best way to think of this, out of nothing, God creates something. The essence of God's creation is goodness. What's the implication of this? The implication of this is that we are here, you and I, life exists not because of an impersonal accident. Life exists We are here because of an intentional, purposeful, creative act of love. This is very, very important. No creation story back when this was written was trying to create a science textbook. But all of the creation stories presented our existence, the existence of this universe, as being some happy or or unfortunate accident among gods. Either a god made a mistake, whoops, or a god got into a fight with another god, whoops, But basically, everything was an accident. Everything was sort of this consequence of something that went wrong. This story says, no, this isn't about randomness. This isn't about an an accident. This was purposeful. This was intentional. This was out of love. And in our modern day, we've removed the story of other gods, but we've created this idea that somehow life just happened. Now, there is randomness built into creation, but that is far different than saying that the creation of life as we know it is random. It is not. Life is not meaningless. The implication of what we get in Genesis 1 and 2 is life is not meaningless. In fact, it's all good. And how do we know that it's all good besides the fact that it tells us repeatedly? It says, it's good, it's good, it's very good. How do we know it's all good? Because what do we see as this unfolds? Life flourishes. Remember where we started there was once nothing. And now there is something, and that something continues to build upon itself as life flourishes. This idea of the essence of God's creation as being goodness, this idea of order and purpose and structure of creation, throughout these, this first part, a great analogy is to think in terms of parenting. And this analogy breaks down because we don't have great parents across the board, but if we think in terms of an ideal parent, the ideal parent doesn't just all of a sudden create life and go, oh, you were an accident. You were a mistake. I mean, what's the worst thing you can hear as a child? Well, we didn't intend to have you. You were a mistake. You were an accident. No, as an ideal parent, we say to our children, we wanted to bring you into this world. We imagined, we prayed. With, yeah, this, is, this, was, this was intentional. We wanted to have a child. Our God is no different. God didn't have an accident. God didn't make a mistake. It didn't just happen. God intentionally, purposefully brought us into this world. The essence of God's creation is goodness. The second thing about it, how it all began is that the pinnacle, the centerpiece of God's creation in Genesis 1 and 2, is humanity. It gets even better. Humanity is the pinnacle of God's creation. Humans, Adam, which is Hebrew for human, Adam and Eve, are made in God's image, we're told. We are made in God's image. We are filled with God's Spirit. Ruach, the Hebrew word for spirit. We are filled with the Spirit of God. These two statements are very important that we are made in God's image and that we are filled with God's Spirit. Here's why. Because as good as it all is, nothing else in all creation bears that mark. Are you hearing me this morning? Nothing else this morning has that impression put upon it, is reflective of the image of God, is filled with the spirit of God. Not the spirit of life, the spirit of God. Everything else in all creation, plants and animals, as good as they are, as incredible as they are, are secondary to us. The pinnacle, the centerpiece of God's creation is humanity. What's the implication of that? Now, for some of us, we think the implication of that is we're awesome, we can do whatever we want, we rock, it's all about us. No, the implication of what Genesis 1 and 2 presents is much more deep and meaningful than that. The implication that the pinnacle of God's creation is humanity, is us, is first, we don't create our own meaning. Hear that, my brothers and sisters, we don't create our own meaning. We live in a world where more and more we tell ourselves, others tell us, that I am whoever and whatever I want to be. Not true. I am not whoever and whatever I want to be. I am made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. First and foremost, we are reflections of God's character out in the world. We bear that first. We don't get to change that. We are reflections of God's character in the world. The implication of being the centerpiece of God's creation is that we are reflections of God's character out in the world. We don't create our own meaning. But it also another implication is we don't define our own purpose. Again, we live in a world where more and more we tell ourselves or tell each other or convince ourselves, I can do whatever I want to do. Not true. I'm really sorry to burst everyone's bubble. You can't do whatever you want to do. We can't do whatever we want to do because not only are we reflections of God's character out in the world, we have also been filled with God's spirit. We are representatives of God. We have been appointed to rule on God's behalf. We are created in the image of God to not only reflect God's character, but to represent God to the rest of creation. And in Genesis 1 and 2, our purpose, our shared calling and commission is clearly spelled out. We are to harness creation's potential We are given this incredible canvas and we are to harness this potential. But we are to care for, not trash creation. We're not to suddenly become Sid in Toy Story and do whatever the heck we want and create, you know, make our own toys and destroy them and blow them up. And for all of us out there, and I'm not trying to get political, I'm trying to get theological here who get all annoyed by all those environmental stuff, sorry, pay attention to Genesis. You ought to pay more attention to the environment. Because God says, I want you to represent me, to reflect me, by treating creation, this universe, plants, animals, all of it, the way I would treat it. So we're not supposed to trash creation. We're supposed to respect boundaries. We're supposed to maintain order. And ultimately, how we best represent and reflect God is we foster and create the ongoing flourishing of life. Remember what I told you, how we know it's good? Because life begets life, the flourishing of life. We are best representing God, accurately representing God, reflecting his character when life flourishes. And God even gives us the rhythm of what that looks like. Work and rest. Work and rest, hence the seventh day that we didn't talk about, the Sabbath. That's the rhythm for life to flourish. And again, back to that parenting analogy, right? I mean, imagine if as a parent, and this is horrific, right? A parent all of a sudden just has a kid and says, okay, well, you're on your own, whatever, you know? Figure out who you are. No, when we have a child, the ideal parent names that child and says, you are a part of me. You are a part of this family. You reflect The Twightman name. You are representative of the Twightmans that have come before you and you will be representative of the Twightmans still to come. You are not alone. You are not on your own. You don't get to just create your own meaning. You don't get to just just to decide um, to be whatever you want to do. You're connected to me. And God is no different. God says, hey, you're created in my image. You reflect my character. You're my representative. What the world thinks about me, they think about me because of you. How you represent me. The essence of God's creation is goodness. The pinnacle of God's creation is humanity. And the third observation in how it all began is the purpose of God's creation is relationship. This is so important. God is a relational being. Later on in the church, we develop this understanding in terms of the Trinity. We believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But even in the first couple of pages of Genesis, you see this reference to a plural pronoun in terms of God the spirit of God hovering over the waters and yet this this element of God creating in the midst of that. So God is a relational being and God is a relational being if we're created in the image of God, if we're representatives of God, then we're created as relational beings. The purpose of creation is relationship. We're created to be in relationship with each other. What's the one thing, if you've read this story or familiar with it, that's not good? Man is alone, right? Right? Adam is alone at first. And just to clarify, it's not like God all of a sudden made a mistake. Oops, I forgot something. What did I forget? Man, I knew I forgot something. God is giving Adam and us an object lesson to understand the purpose of creation. And Adam is told, go ahead, name the animals. Engage everything else. And it's all great. Animals are awesome. Plants are awesome. But it's not the same. And the object lesson is God doesn't just create the masterpiece of creation is not just one human, but humanity. We are created to be in relationship with each other. But even more than that, and this is where it gets really good for me, is when I say the purpose of God's creation is relationship, God doesn't just create us as relational beings to be in relationship with each other. God creates us as relational beings to be in relationship with him. My friends, understand this. God's supreme passion is to be in relationship with you. That's why in Genesis we see that God walks and talks with Adam and Eve. And this isn't some fantasy because the reality is still today, God seeks to walk and talk with you. God creates us for relationship and to be in relationship with him. Again, back to our parenting analogy. As a parent, we don't have children so we can all of a sudden go, yep, did it, procreated. Yep, made it happen. See, can do it. Is able to... Bring a child in the world, right? That's hard. What is the most devastating thing is when we abandon our children. The idea is as a parent, if you adopt, if you create life, you want to be in relationship with that child. My daughter, we just took her to the airport to go back to school yesterday and I miss her already. It's, I'm dying inside. Have a little pity party, just give me two seconds. Just, (laughs) thank you. I am. I miss her desperately and, and, and yet I understand that things have to change. She, I can't have the same, this, you know, have the same experience with her, her being with me under my roof every day. She's going out and doing what she was created to do, but I still wanna be in relationship with her. I still wanna be connected with her. I still wanna participate in what she's about and what she's doing. I don't wanna say, hey, get get out. I mean, imagine that as a parent, and some of us maybe have had that experience where parents are like, look, I, you know, I brought you into this world, I gave you some stuff, now just go, go. The most devastating experience is when we have brokenness, when we don't have that relationship. We worship a God who doesn't just bring us into this world. We worship a God who doesn't just say, you're it. You're the pinnacle. We worship a God who says, I brought you into this world. You're the centerpiece because I want to be in relationship with you. I want to hang out with you. I want to go on the journey with you. And you're not always going to be in the same place, but wherever you go, whatever you do, I want to be there. We worship a God who creates us to create And he wants us to engage relationship with him through the work of our creativity. That's why we say that worship isn't just this time that we spend. Worship isn't singing or praying or communion. Worship is what we do with our lives. Because God says, what you do with your lives, how you fill your life, how you create, that's how you're in relationship with me. All of our lives is our act of worship. And here's the thing. God so much wants to be in relationship with us. He empowers us. He equips us. And he seeks to guide us. One observation, just to show you that this is true, is I told you, day seven, God rests. God does something really, really interesting, right? God works and then he rests. But God tells us it's the other way around for us. God, in creating us for relationships, says, look, I'm going to set everything you need out there. I'm going to make sure you have everything you need. I'm going to do the work so that you can rest first in order to work. Do you understand that? God says, rest in everything that I've given you, everything you need, and then create, then work. And let me tell you, and we haven't gotten to sin yet, but one of the manifestations of sin is when we get that backwards and we go, no, 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 i got to work first before I can rest. Because functionally what you're saying is, God hasn't given me everything I need. So i got to take care of all this and then I can rest. Which ultimately means your rest and your work isn't reliant upon God, it's reliant upon you. And that's why for many of you who live that way, I'm going to work in order to rest, never rest because you're never done working. You know it's true. You go on vacation and you need a vacation from your vacation. Because as crazy as this sounds, you got to work to rest on your vacation. And then you get back, and you got to figure out how to work to get back into work. And God says, I've wired it where I've taken care of everything you need. If you rest first, then you'll create. Then you'll work. And that's the relationship God wants with us. And as parents, isn't that what we seek with our children again as well? We want to be in relationship with them, and don't we try to provide for them? Don't we provide, give them things along the way to get them there so that they can flourish in life. How many of us have conversations with our kids where we're like, why are you working so hard? What are you chasing after? We, this is what we provided for you. And how many of you, maybe you were that kid, are like, oh no, no, you don't understand. This is gonna be great. I, I'm, this is, thank you so much for all your help, but I choose to do it myself. Thank you so much. I choose to figure it out on my own. How's it going? We have a God who the essence of everything he's created is goodness. That we're the centerpiece of that. That that he wants to be in relationship with us. And the word that we use is covenant. This first part of our series is about covenant. Covenant's a fancy word for relationship. And what we see in the beginning of Genesis, how it all began, is a covenant, a relationship of love. It's a relationship of love where it's not an accident or a mistake, it's intentional where it's we have a sense of belonging a sense of identity and responsibility we know who we are we know what we're about by this God and that we are God wants to be with us he wants to be in relationship with us just not just cut us loose it is a relationship of love because God gives us life that's love because God gives us significance that's love and because God gives us purpose but when I say it's a covenant, a relationship of love, understand something else, which will be our bridge to our next part about how it all began. When we talk about love, we see from the very beginning that love is a sacrifice. Think about it. God sacrifices by delegating to us. God does this incredible creation of a universe, an amazing universe, and says, all right, I'm gonna be, have me reflected by you. I'm delegating to you. I have created the ultimate driving machine. You know, you ever think about like you maybe any of you have a car that you were going to let your kids drive? Give them the keys to your car. Okay, you can drive drive the beat up one over here, Not not, not not my baby. God creates this incredible universe and says, "Here you go. Here are the keys." God creates this incredible universe, and that love is a sacrifice not only because He delegates to us, but He trusts us. He says, I'm going to take responsibility for what you do now. When your parents have that sweet ride, right, and they hand you the keys, whose insurance are you driving under? Theirs. When you crash it, when you get into an accident, when they come, they're going to, and they go, Oh, it was my kid's fault. I don't care about your kid, it's your car, your insurance. God says, I'm going to trust you. I am going to bear responsibility for what you do. So how the rest of creation sees me is going to be based upon what you do. That's love. And that kind of love to delegate, that kind of love to bear responsibility is about risk. And the risk of love is present in the goodness of creation. When Adam and Eve are given, and we are given the same, the freedom and the power to choose. One thing to notice here, This is a covenant of love, a relationship of love, but God does not force love. We are given the dignity of a choice, of how to live, of how to build, of how to create. And that's why God in the midst of this grand universe he creates, localizes everything in our story in a garden, right? In a garden with two distinctive trees that are called out. And maybe this will help you understand why these trees are called out. Because on the one hand, there's the tree of life. And the tree of life is exactly what it says it is. It's the root, it's the source. Up until now, God has provided and defined what is good and not good. Stay connected to the tree of life, to the source, and you live, you flourish. All good. And then there's another tree that God calls out in the garden and says, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, don't eat from that tree. Because that tree represents the choice. Up until now, God has provided and defined what is good and not good. This tree represents the choice to trust God's definition or to seize autonomy and to define good and evil for yourself. Important thing that you notice in the story, you may wonder why, you can only choose one, one of the two trees, you can only choose one. One you'll live, the other you'll die, God says. Why can't you have both? Because here's the thing, if you choose this one, and you rebel against God, you're embracing death. Because you're turning away from the source of life, your creator. You can't choose both, you can only choose one. And that leads us to how it all fell apart. How it all fell apart, stage is set, it's all good. It all fell apart in Genesis chapter three when the choice became real. Very important you hear this. One of the things you need to understand when we talk about what went wrong, Is the potential for that word, that three-letter word we don't like, sin, is always there because of the choice. The potential for sin is always there because of the choice. The choice is important. The choice is the freedom and the dignity, the risk and the sacrifice of love. My friends, the impact of yes is meaningless without the possibility of no. Are you hearing me? Yes means nothing, unless no is a possibility. The potential for everything to go wrong is there from the very beginning of creation because of the risk of love. But it all falls apart when sin becomes actualized. And how does that happen? Well, as you know, might remember, an instigator, a provocateur, an igniter comes along, a creature in rebellion against God that tells a different story. Very important, a different story. A different story about the tree and the choice. And what's that other story? You remember it? This instigator says, no, 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 you can eat from this tree. You won't die. In fact, the only way to live is to eat from this tree because if you eat from this tree, you'll become like God. Now, there's a great irony in that moment. I don't know if you've caught it before, but maybe you will now. There's a great irony in that moment when it said, you'll become like God. And the irony is this, we're already like God. We're made in his image, people. We're rep- his representatives. You can't get more God-like than we already are. So what really is being proposed in this alternative story is not to become like God. The real agenda of the other story is to remove or replace God. And that brings us to sin. What is sin? Sin is actualized. Sin becomes real every time we make the choice of autonomy. Every time we make the choice to deny, to reject, to rebel against God. Every time we make the choice not to trust God. Every time we make the choice to say we don't need God. Every time we make the choice to play God. Big difference. We were created to reflect and represent God. To play God is to say I'm not reflecting you. I'm not representing you. I'm going to be you. I'm going to play God and I'm going to make up my own rules and I'm going to go my own way. Every time we make that choice, we've actualized sin. And here's, if, and if that's not a concern, Genesis chapter three, now all the way to 11, is literally seeing how sin changes everything. You know that book, Going From Good to Great? Our story goes from bad to worse. We see the casualty of sin, the corruptive, the cor- corrosive, the destructive impact of sin reverberates through Genesis chapters 3 through 11. We watch it spiral out of control. In Genesis chapter 3 alone, we have the first lie. You won't die. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the first deception. In Genesis chapter 3, we have functionally the first divorce. Adam and Eve are all lovey-dovey and all, until all of a sudden when sin gets actualized and when Adam gets called to the carpet, he says, well, it's that woman's fault that you put here with me. The first divorce, the first lie, the first deception in chapter three alone, but then you go to chapter four, boom, first murder as Cain kills his brother Abel. doesn't stop. Chapter five, you probably stop, probably most of you know Cain and Abel. Go to chapter five. It gets better, worse before it gets better because out of Cain comes Lamech. And Lamech's the first tyrant, man, and he's a beauty. Lamech is all about violence and vengeance. He lives to conquer and enslave, and he is good at it. And then it leads us all the way to where we were in chapter 6, that verse I read to you where we suddenly go from the beginning to this where God laments over an increasingly desperate world as we see in just a few short chapters how sin threatens to destroy everything. I read this to you before. I want to read it to this part to you again because it breaks my heart. Listen to this. Listen to every word of this. When God is lamenting over an increasingly desperate world and it says he laments because every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That's the plague of sin. Now, some of you are probably like my son, right? You hate this story. You're like my son. You're like, man, Adam and Eve, talk about a bunch of losers. Oh, my gosh. You know what? I wish I was there. If I had been there, I would have made a different choice. And I'm venturing to guess that there's a handful of you that are like, you probably won't admit it out loud. My son's pretty good about it, just, just calling it out. But you're like, you know, that's true. I wouldn't. Come on. Snake. <laughs> Thank you. I wouldn't have chose the tree, it's all good. You think, I, wouldn't, I would have chose differently. Because you see, some of us here today think that the problem of sin is a personality problem, right? Right, personality, no problem, right? And others of you are like, put it a little differently. Maybe, maybe, you're, not, maybe you're not that bold. Maybe you just simply say this. Have you ever said this? You know what, if we just got rid of all the bad people, the world would be a better place, right? Let's just get rid of all the bad people and we won't have all the problems we have now. Beautiful thing here in Genesis is Genesis chapter six through nine address both of these theories. This idea that sin's just a personality problem and the idea that if we just get rid of all the bad people, everything will be okay. Because in the aftermath of God lamenting how just messed up everything is, as you probably remember, God says, you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> I'm going to bring the biggest bath this world has ever seen. I'm going to flood this world to just wash everything clean. I'm going to get rid of all the bad people. And in the midst of doing this, I didn't read this in chapter six, but he has a promising candidate to start over, a man named Noah. So understand what the flood is all about. It is exactly what we're talking about. It's a reset. It's a new creation, man. It's clearing the decks. He's got a new Adam. His name's Noah. And after the flood, if you go and read it, he says the exact same words that he said to Adam and Eve, the same covenant of love, fill the earth, subdue it. Be fruitful, multiply. Here it is. It's all yours. All right. We got rid of all the bad people. We got a different personality. It's going to be different. <laughs> right? It's going to be good. Noah just got saved from worldwide disaster. And what's his next move? To knock down a couple of beers and feel good. <laughs> Woo! Survive that one. Ha <laughs> ha! He gets drunk. Don't miss the irony of this reset. It's back in a garden, and once again, humanity is naked and ashamed. As Noah is drunk, so drunk he's fallen asleep, his sons come out and take advantage of his drunkenness. And then Noah gets up, probably with the worst hangover ever, and curses all of his children. And we have in the next chapter, chapter seven, the building out of the cursing of a family, the separation, the divorce of a family, the table of nations. That's right, our response is to buckle up and get ready for battle. And violence and war are about to happen until all of a sudden the world becomes unified. We all love world unity, right? It becomes unified under a great idea. Let's build a tower and take out God. Any of this sound familiar? Unity in defiance until God says, okay, enough of that. Here's my point with Genesis 6 through 11. For those of us who are like, sin's a personality problem. I'd choose differently. Or for those of us who say, just get rid of all the bad people. Here's the point. The flood erased all the bad people, but the flood didn't erase the problem of sin. Because my friends, and you need to get this, the effect of sin runs deep. Not skin deep, but on a DNA level. Because while the problem of sin may have begun with a choice, the problem of sin is more than a choice. It is a cancer of our character. It is a distortion of our will. That's why the theological term, you may have heard it, we talk about a sin nature. Because we all carry the infection, the virus of sin. Yeah, we can look way back when And the choice that our ancestors made had consequences. And yes, we are living out those consequences. We are living out those consequences. But at the same time, despite all our progress, despite all our enlightenment, despite all our evolution, despite all our technology, we keep making the same choice they did. Right? We're still bowing down, facing the same temptation. It has different language, but it's the same argument, right? The argument for autonomy. We all have those moments when we go, we don't need God. We all have those moments go when we say, we don't trust God. We may be bold and active about it, but some of us are much more passive when we go, eh, I'm not gonna pay attention to that. Eh, nah, nah, God, that's not your territory. The same battle, the same fruit, the same tree, we think we know better. We think we don't need God. We think we, can, we can't trust God. And we feel it, all of us, we all feel, we all see, we struggle with the problem of sin. We all, to some degree, some of us more than others, sadly, have broken, damaged relationships in our lives, damaged relationships with ourselves. Some of us deal with tremendous insecurity, the need to be perfect. Some of us deal with broken relationships with our with each other, breakdowns in our marriages, in our families, amongst other people. Great prejudices and burdens that we're carrying. We have breakdown in our relationship with God, where we have a hard time reconciling God, feeling close to God, hearing God. We see, we feel, we experience the struggle of the problem of sin. Go back to the very beginning. The same two major. Outcomes of when sin gets actualized in Genesis chapter 3 are reverberated through our lives. What's the first thing that happens when sin gets actualized with Adam and Eve? Shame. These people were one flesh. They were partners. They worked together. They shared everything. They were naked in every sense of the word, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, and they were unafraid. All of a sudden, when sin comes into the world, when they decide to go their own way, they are shamed. They're afraid of vulnerability. They hide. Are we any different? How many of us are carrying shame in our lives? How many of us are afraid to get real? How many of us get honest, but even to the people we're really, really honest with, there's a level we still won't go because we can't be that vulnerable. How many of us are hiding? Still. We put on faces, we're ducking and dodging. It's the same thing now. And you remember in that story, as shame comes into the world, God comes down, and God's like, where are you? He's not asking because he doesn't know. Where are you? I see everything. I know everything. And shame, the the other big reverberation from sin, is blame. Okay, let's get real. What's going on here? And do they go, yep, you're right. Man, we screwed up. We need you. No, her fault. His fault. Your fault. Your fault. And if I take a show of hands around this room to show you that this is still alive and well, you got the cancer, you got the virus along with me, if I were to ask you about personal, public, global problems, the last person you're gonna point to is you. You're gonna blame somebody else. You're gonna blame your spouse. You're gonna blame your kids. You're gonna blame your boss. You're gonna blame those people, that country, that party. Blame is alive and well. We see, we feel, we struggle with the problem of sin, the broken relationships, hiding, the fear of vulnerability, the shame, the blame, the, the lack of intimacy in our lives, and we still are dealing with the same outcomes. The biggest thing we all fear is death, physical death. But, friends, you'd know this. Way before we die, whenever that comes physically, we die a thousand deaths because of the problem of sin. And the deaths that I'm talking about, and you've experienced them, are the deaths of lies in your life, betrayal in your life, the death that comes from deception in your life, the death that comes from divorce, and I'm not just talking about marital divorce, I'm talking about people you cut yourself off from, or been cut off from. We deal with the effects, the death that comes from murder, not just physical murder, but the people we murder in our hearts and in our minds. We deal with the effects of sin, the death that comes from destruction, and violence, and war, and slavery. We are how many years along, and our solutions are no different. In case I lost you in my passion, let's review one more time how it all went wrong. Sin is actualized every time we make the choice of autonomy. Every time we make the choice to deny, to reject or rebel against God, every time we make the choice not to trust God, every time we make the choice to say we don't need God, every time we play God, and by play God I mean instead of representing, reflecting God, we make our own rules, we go our own way. We have engaged the reality of sin. Sin is actualized every time we make the choice of autonomy, but in case you missed it, the problem of sin is more than a choice. It's a cancer of our character. It's a distortion of our will. And the net result, how you can see that, is you and I, myself included, we're addicted to ourselves. We are self-absorbed. We are self-centered. It's all about me, right? And we all think we can fix it. We just get some self-help. We just give some self-love. We just give some self-affirmation. And we pile it on and you got your gurus and your books and all the things that you do. And yet every single one of us, we get a little bit of progress, but we're still filled with self-doubt, self-criticism, and self-hate. Because the problem of sin is more than a choice. It's this addiction to self. We got what we wanted. We got autonomy, baby. And it ain't everything we thought it was cracked up to be. And we sit here and we realize relationship is broken. We're not in relationship with ourselves. We're not at peace with ourselves. We don't know how to be in full relationship with each other. We get close, but, and we don't know how to be in relationship with this God. We can't help ourselves. We've fallen and we can't get up. Sin changes everything. That's what I want you to walk away with today. Even more than the first part. Sin changes everything. This isn't a minor problem. It isn't even a major problem. It's the problem. Because rejecting and rebelling against God's purposes, however you want to frame it, slice it, dice it, rebelling and rejecting against God's purposes, order, and structure, distorts our humanity. It damages our relationships, and it threatens to destroy all that is good in this world. Houston, we have a problem. But is there a solution? Does God have a solution? The good news, my friends, and I hope you're in now for the duration of 2017 because the good news is the rest of the story is gonna continue to show us the reality of sin's power because we get very forgetful and we're gonna continue to see sin. Oh, man. The rest of the story is gonna show us the reality of sin's power, but the good news is the rest of the story is in the midst of that about God's pursuit to get us back. In fact, in the midst of this opening, there are even clues to God's salvation plan. Hints and whispers in Genesis chapter three. Promises, if you looked at it, if you read it, of a wounded victor. A mighty warrior who will defeat sin and conquer death not through the force of our will, but through the choice of his undying love. But more about that next time. As we close... Beloved, God's great passion is not the sun, the moon, or the stars. It's not the birds or the bees or the flowers and the trees. God's great passion is us. It's you and me. God's singular vision, do you understand this? God's singular vision for his creation is to spend time with us every day, to be with us. And God's singular purpose, it's not complicated, is to empower, to equip, and to guide us to fill the earth with life, with color, and with beauty. The vision is clear. The purpose is stated. But the story opens with a big bang. And it's not the big bang of some impersonal accident, some act of randomness, The story opens with the big bang of humanity's outright rejection of the revelation of God's purposeful and ordered love. But the good news is what we'll see over this next year, and it's going to be a good year, what we're going to see over this next year in the story is even though we keep rejecting, even though we keep rebelling, even though we keep denying God, even though we can't help ourselves, even though we can't choose God, God keeps choosing us. Choosing not to let us go. Choosing to bring us through it all no matter what it is and choosing to lead us home. Amen.